Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Although the weather here in England at the moment is bitterly cold and the last thing we need to worry about is keeping cool, we've been seeing the rise of more extreme weather, especially in the summer. Heat and humidity might have us reaching for a simple accessory which humanity has relied on for thousands of years. Welcome to the sixth Dying Arts episode of the Three Ravens podcast, a series all about heritage crafts and forgotten arts. I'm Eleanor Conlon, and I'm lazing on a pile of cushions while my co-host Martin Vaux gently wafts a fan nearby. Hello! Let the meat cake, etc., etc. You've probably guessed already, but today we're going to be discussing fans and fan making. Now, I wouldn't have thought that fans qualified as a dying art, Eleanor. We have several in our house, and I know you like to carry one with you in the summer to keep cool. How endangered are they, really? Well, fans themselves are not endangered, but the traditional art of making fans, especially in this country, is classed as critically endangered, oh, really? which means there are no professional makers relying on the craft as their main income, and under five who rely on fan making as a sideline to their main income. But fans absolutely are still made. I mean, they're quite easy to buy. Any National Trust gift shop during the summer months will sell you a pretty fan, probably for a bit too much money. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. But those will be mass produced in factories by machine and probably not here, rather than being the portable works of handmade art that they once were. I see. So it's fair to say perhaps that the handheld fan is not the must-have accessory of the moment, especially for younger generations as well. <laughs> But there was a time when it was absolutely ubiquitous. An article on the website of the Worshipful Company of Fan Makers actually equates the hand fan with the mobile phone. Whoa. 
So in the 17th century, for example, you could probably see as many fans in public as phones today. So interesting. And like phones, fans could be used for a variety of different purposes. While a phone can make calls, store information, play games and music, connect to the internet and even look fancy with a nice cover and certainly reflect its owner's wealth and status, Mm. fans also adapted to suit different needs. Although it's most basic, the fan is a simple tool for creating a breeze. They've been works of art owned by royalty, souvenirs of historic events, vehicles for advertising materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's just loop back. The worshipful company of fan makers. I mean, that suggests there's people making fans. Surprisingly, not. No? No. Well, the livery companies of the City of London, which we've discussed before in our Middlesex episode Mm. and and others, have varied membership criteria that many of the ancient companies don't actually require their members to follow the trade they were originally established for. There's a subset of livery companies known as the modern companies, so those formed after 1926, which represent professions like accountancy, management consultants, tax advisors, and so forth. Mm, Slightly less romantic than fan making. Those ones only (laughs) open membership to qualified professionals in that area. Okay. But for example, the worshipful company of Drapers, which was established more than six centuries ago as a guild of merchants who wanted to promote their trade in woolen cloth has evolved from a trade association into a philanthropic organisation and their members have all sorts of different backgrounds. They're not all drapers. Yeah, okay. So the fan makers is one of those? Yeah. There are likely no actual fan makers on its books currently. Well, that seems a bit crazy to me. So do you think I could sign up to be a member of the worshipful company of fan makers? Yeah, you could certainly apply. <laughs> <laughs> However, I will say the company does promote education in the history of fans and fan making and also supports further training to keep the craft alive. Well, if this episode turns out to be as interesting as I hope it will do, maybe that's exactly what I'll require. (laughs) Well, they have partnerships with various colleges to deliver modules on fans and fan making, and they're actively trying to produce two to three fan makers who can make their living from the craft over the next 10 years. So you could be one of them. Okay, so it sounds as though some energy is being put into making the craft viable in the UK today, or at least for the future. Certainly. And now we're starting to experience summers as hot as those in Southern Europe. It feels quite relevant. Mm. (laughs) For listeners in other parts of the world, just to clarify, it's the exception rather than the norm to have air conditioning in UK homes. Oh, yeah. You hardly ever find it. Right now, as frost delicately patterns the window panes (laughs) and we shiver in our long johns, it feels very unnecessary. But our summers now regularly creep up to 37 degrees, so perhaps it's time the ham fan made a major comeback. Yeah, all it would take is a few celebrity influencers wafting them around fabulously. Yeah, perhaps the worshipful company of fan makers ought to reach out to some bright young things for a partnership. Yeah, Timothy Chalamet with a fan. Exactly. I I think it could kick off. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So maybe we can make that happen in the Three Ravens podcast group. Good idea. I'm actually thinking that a series of fans painted with images inspired by folklore could be a pretty wonderful thing. Oh, yes. That sparked off a lot of ideas. (laughs) Lovely. Okay, so looking back into the annals of time, when do we first get fans? Like, I I'm assuming they're fairly ancient. Like, I have images of ancient kings being wafted by staff. Well, it's perhaps a bit glib to say that fans are as old as hot weather, (laughs) but their history certainly does go back a very long way across a huge proportion of the world. The earliest examples probably date from around 3000 BC and could be found in East Asia, Africa and Europe. See, that's very interesting because I imagine that they kind of develop out of using big leaves. That's sort of where I thought it. It would start in my mind. But people were actually developing fans independently across the world. Yeah, it's easy 
to forget hand fans when we think about early tools. We tend to think about axes, don't we, and yeah, hammers, yeah. like things we found to sort of bash things. And things that you get in video games to achieve. <laughs> yeah, basic pickaxe, basic <laughs> yeah. shovel, that kind of thing. But yeah. actually, versions of fans were springing up all over the place too. And so do styles of fans actually differ geographically? Yes, a bit. Are you ready for a bit of a fan history deep dive? Well, of course I am, yes. So where in the world would you like to start? Well, I think I tend to associate fans probably with the Far East, so Japan and China, so like one of those. Excellent. Let's look at ancient China first. Cool. There were many different types of fans, and the Chinese character for fans, so the written character, mm-hmm. is actually made up of the characters for feather and for door, oh. which I think is quite interesting. Feather door. It, feather door. It comprises the idea of opening and closing and, and the idea of flight, mm. so associations with air, etc. And as well as being used to relieve people in hot weather, there's plenty of evidence of fans being used for ceremonies and rituals as well. It's fair to say they were highly representative of individual taste and status and society. Now, I'm conscious that ancient Chinese history is a little bit tricky to get your fingers on because a lot of products are made from biodegradable materials. So things like bamboo, for example, swords Mm -hmm. and spears are made out of bamboo. So we don't have many records of ancient swords and spears from China. I'm imagining the same is going to be true of fans. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. The oldest existing examples are two woven bamboo side mounted fans, which date from the second century BC. Okay. Okay, so but that's still quite old. It's still quite old, but we know that they would have existed earlier yeah. prior to that, but um, those I, are the I, earliest surviving. I imagine there's probably sculptures and paintings. Yes, it's uh, we know from art and literature that fans in ancient China were made from a variety of materials, um, including feathers, silk, bamboo and paper, and came in different shapes such as half moon, leaf, oval and even hexagonal. Oh, that's so interesting. So lots of different styles of fans and we know more about them because they were written about or drawn or mm. or carved. Now, you mentioned ritual use. Do we know what kind of rituals fans were used for in ancient China? Well, one really lovely example is during traditional Chinese wedding ceremonies, a moon-shaped fan called a Kueshan was used, held in front of the bride's face through most of the ceremonies, maybe to hide shyness or seem mysterious or even exercise evil spirits. Excellent. And after all the ceremonies had been completed, the bride would reveal her face to the groom in a final ceremony by removing the fan. That is very sweet. But I also like the idea of wafting demons away. Get away yeah, get away. <laughs> There's also a very ancient ritual Chinese fan called the Wuming Shan, believed to have been invented by Emperor Shun, who lived between... 2294 and 2184 BC. Well, that's a long time ago. It is a very large fan and has a long handle and actually resembles a door in shape. Whoa! Which may be where the character comes from. I see, I see. I mean... I tend to think of Chinese fans as being highly decorated, so like intricately painted, in my head, silk with calligraphy and scenes, but the door parallel is quite mysterious. Do we know why fans were equated with doors? Well, aside from the opening and closing parallel with folding fans, we also have evidence that they used ceiling fans in ancient China, which resembled door panels. Okay. They were suspended from the ceiling and pulled backwards and forwards by strings. And use of these was recorded actually in the first Chinese dictionary, which dates from the 2nd century AD. Whoa. I mean, that type of 
simple ceiling fan was used in the tropics up until the 20th century. Like the rotary fan is a relatively new addition to fan. Yes, it used to be a sort of big door shaped flap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A bit, a bit like um, you'd have shutters on a window. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't realise they were that old, though. It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, it is. Of course, it would have been operated by staff yes. on the strings. So it was uh, not automated. There were people no. working very hard to keep those ceiling fans moving. Yeah, opening and closing the feather doors. Yeah. <laughs> but as to highly decorated fans, that's certainly the case. As they grew in popularity and famous artists would often be commissioned to paint really expensive fans. So interesting. And I have to say, I love the idea of carrying around a tiny work of custom art as your accessory. It's quite the flex, isn't it? It really is. Whose artwork would you have on a fan? Oh my goodness, that's a really difficult question. I mean, I think you'd need different fans for different outfits. Oh, of course. But I don't know, there's something a bit goth and emo about me in general, I like to think. And so maybe one of Goya's dark paintings, (laughs) some kind of horrific image. Hieronymus Bosch. Scare people (laughs) off. Yeah, Hieronymus Bosch, great shout. (laughs) It's believed that the folding fan, which is the style we know well today, was actually developed in Japan and spread west into China. The early examples were made using thin strips of cypress wood tied together with thread. And there were all sorts of rules attached, actually. So the number of strips of wood you were actually allowed in your fan differed according to your rank. Of course, Japan. And this type of early fan still has ceremonial use. It's carried by the royal court when they're in formal dress, for example, and also used in the formal dress of Shinto priests. So still used today? Yes, but for ceremonial use um, the majority of Japanese fans, though, through history and still today, were made of paper. Originally, that paper would have been handmade. Now, it's more likely to be mass-produced by of machine. Course, yeah, yeah. And they were painted with a variety of designs and patterns, which might include family crests, images from nature or literature and other things. Mm. These were so popular that decoration was actually restricted by sumptuary laws during the Heian period. Again, another restriction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, for those who haven't encountered them, sumptuary laws to be specific. They're essentially laws to do with consumption. And throughout history, they've often represented attempts to control dress and keep people in allocated social positions. Yeah. We've had them in England as well. Absolutely. Elizabethan period, absolutely full of sumptuary laws. And the colour purple, for example, Mm. has a long history of being restricted by sumptuary to the ruling classes. Yes, until the invention of lilac, right? Yeah, lilac. That age-old loophole. (laughs) Yes, indeed. But it's interesting to think of fans being regulated by like how deep and big your fan can be and what you can have on it. How many sticks your fan can have. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's it's very minute. (laughs) But it's also a really important way of signalling who you are. Mm. So you don't actually have to explain yourself. It's a bit like having a business card or like a military medal or honours. You can just flip open the fan and someone will go, oh my goodness, it's the Viceroy. <laughs> exactly. Oh no, he's got 22 sticks in his fan. Quick, bow, bow. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Japan also has a tradition of using fans in the military as well as a way of sending signals and battle. Yeah. And they were even weaponized. Mm. The iron fan or the, or the tessin could be pretty unpleasant if you were on the receiving end of that mm. being Flicked open, and those were actually designed to be rather sneakily taken into places where samurai weren't allowed to bring their swords. Yes. So if you're a samurai and you want to go to the bathhouse mm-hmm. and you still want to be armed, but you're not really meant to take your weapon in because it's dishonourable, you can still take your tessin in. Yeah, and be it's got, armed. got blades inside it. It's such a cool thing. Like 
I like a lot of kung fu movies. <laughs> like <laughs> when a Tessin pops up. Yeah, martial arts movies, ninja films, when you see a Tessin, it's always like, oh, look, they've bothered. <laughs> yeah, and we can still see them in modern day sumo wrestling. The umpire tends to use a gumbai, which is a type of ancient military leader's fan. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, so they'll, well. they'll use it as a signal to yeah, start or to like stop or for something to happen. I think they use different gestures with it. I mean, in this country, traditionally we've used flags instead, haven't we? But it's kind yes. of uh, serving a similar signalling purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting to see fans being used in this way. And I wouldn't have thought of that. I mean, I didn't know anything about sumo wrestling, for example, before I started researching this. So. Oh, well, let's sit down and watch some sumo later. It's a <laughs> wild and crazy sport. All right. <laughs> we also see fans being used in Vietnam and ancient Korea. There's a really nice folk legend from Korea, actually, about the king distributing hand fans to all his vassals on May the 5th which is when the hot weather began. Oh, that's cute. Then each vassal would hand out fans to his elders and other people he wanted to honour. And the practice of exchanging hand fans remains popular in Korea today. Well, I think we should make this idea more widespread now. Like, let's all try and give someone a fan on May the 5th. That's yeah. such a cool idea. I love that. <laughs> now, we know that hand fans were also used in Africa. Mm. We have very early depictions of fans in relief carvings. There's one especially at the Temple of Ramesses the showing a fan bearer who's carrying the kind of fan we picture if we think of an emperor being fanned with a long handle and trimmed with long feathers yes. or possibly leaves but more likely feathers yeah. so that it can shade the person below it as well as cooling them down. That traditional notion of a punkawala or, or something like that. I mean, I've always fancied that idea. Someone feeding me peeled and possibly frozen grapes and just fanning me gently with a big fan with feathers on the end. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Fans were also discovered when the tomb of Tutankhamun was opened in 1922, including the fabulous golden fan. Yeah, we just saw it on our visit to the British Museum, didn't we? That's a wonderful object. And it would have originally had ostrich feathers, which have disintegrated now. I mean, they don't last very long, mm. do they, ostrich feathers? We have some vintage fans, which used to have ostrich feathers on, but they all decayed. are beginning to fall apart. Yeah, but this fan of Tutankhamun's, it's entirely covered in gold leaf and it features a design of the pharaoh hunting ostriches. It is so opulent. It's so amazing yeah. and suggests that fans were intended as a status item to impress others rather than just performing the function of cooling you down. Yeah, well, we seem to be making our way west, Eleanor. We started in the far east, we've kind of gone down into Africa when does the fan appear in Europe, as far as we can tell, at least? Well, it certainly flaps in during the classical period, usually as the fixed variety rather than the folding, I so see. a single yeah. piece. Surviving amphorae show figures carrying fans, and we also know from textual evidence that a hand fan called a ripis was used in Greece from at least the 4th century BC. Okay. We also hear of ceremonial fans being used in early Christian worship in Europe. Early Christian worship? Yes, really. Uh, known as flabella or a flabellum is the singular, they were used during services to keep insects away from the altar and the consecrated bread and wine. Oh, so holy fans. Yeah, to, to stop flies landing on the holy host <laughs> so and fun. presumably becoming holy flies. I'm yes, not indeed. quite sure how this works, but anyway, <laughs> they didn't want it. Um, they're still actually used today in Eastern Orthodox and Ethiopian churches as well. Really? 
We don't really see hand fans much in personal use during the early Middle Ages in Europe, though. But they've been reintroduced by the 13th century, perhaps due to being brought back by crusaders and refugees from Byzantium mm. and things like that. Sure, that makes sense. But it's likely that fans were introduced in a widespread way by Portuguese traders who opened up the sea route to China and Japan in the 15th and 16th centuries, which really kicked off Eastern fan imports to Europe. Yes, we see fans in lots and lots of pictures and portraits from the 16th and 17th centuries, don't we? Totally. Elizabeth I is often pictured carrying both rigid and folding fans, and they might have hooked onto a girdle so they could be carried hands-free. There are surviving fans like the sort Elizabeth might have used and they showcase materials like leather with cut out or pinked designs. Pink? Which was, uh, so um, pink designs is a technique they used a lot in the 16th and 15th century, I think it started. Basically, you have a heated tool and one end has a little stamp or a design and you heat the tool and you hammer it into the fabric creating a perfectly perforated shape. Oh, okay. And then that uh, that pierced piece of fabric often has a fabric of different colour behind, which will peep through the holes. With you. Yeah, it's very beautiful. It forms a kind of lace-like look, yeah. especially in fans. And they also use things like inlaid mica, which Ooh, sort of powdered very gold. Fancy. Yeah, very fancy. And we know that they were an important part of the royal wardrobe in the period. There's a document called the Stowe Inventory, which dates from 1600, has an entire section on fans spelt F-A-N-N-E-S. Oh, excellent. I love things like that. It really gives you such an intimate idea of what people from a time period thought was important or precious. Yeah, it's like Elizabeth's collection of fans, jewels, hats, gloves. It's so interesting. I mean, I'd also quite like to at one point sit down and go, Martin's collection of T-shirts and socks and underpants. (laughs) The Vaux inventory. Just so we have the inventory. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I'm happy for you to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But by the end of the 17th century, it was all about the folding fan in Europe. Sure. Though they were still imported from the Far East, they were also made throughout Europe by this point. And especially in England, actually, after the 1685 Edict of Nantes caused a lot of craftspeople to leave France for surrounding Protestant countries. I have no idea what the Edict of Nantes is. Catholics are great, Protestants get out. Oh, I see. So everybody had to flee if they were a Protestant. Yeah. And you're more likely to be a craftsperson if you're a Protestant. <laughs> yes, so a lot of craftspeople did happen to be Protestants, so yeah. they left for Holland and England. And sure. places of greater safety, yeah. in short. okay. And from the end of the 17th into the 18th century, we start to see these incredibly elaborate designs. Think tortoise shell, ivory, gold and silver work, elaborate painted or even printed leaves. Printed? Now, that surprises me. It seems a bit early for printing. Yeah, the printed fan was developed. And we can still see those today. And mainly they were much cheaper to make. Yeah, and thus more accessible to people beyond the extremely wealthy. Mm. So the very lavish fans, of course, remained at the top end of the market. But there were many more cheap and cheerful options. Well, the Victorian era, in my head, is a period of time where you get an explosion of what we might even call quite tacky fans. Absolutely. Many tacky things. And printed fans could be really fun and playful and might include things like riddles, dancing instructions, sheet music for popular songs well, and I've the seen steps to do of, it. I've seen actually more than one of those, quite a few of them that have music on and songs and lyrics on yeah, as well. Yeah, it was sort of what was popular um, might find its way onto the fan. You know, there's even an example of one with uh, the seating plan for an opera house Fantastic. printed on it. You name it, it was probably on a fan. Well, they were also used for merchandise, of course. You know, if you had a big event coming up, 
you know, during the 19th century, you would make some custom fans and try and sell them. Yeah, the they were great way. exhibition yeah, fans, you, weren't they? You might sell, you know, a T-shirt or a hoodie or whatever. But it does point to a popular revival today. Mm. Like anyone who's ever been to a gig in a tiny hot venue could probably appreciate if a band sold a little custom fan amongst their merchandise. Yeah, with their logo or a picture or maybe some song lyrics yeah, printed on. that would be cool. I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Then in the 19th century, fans developed another life as screen fans. Screen fans? Well, due in part to the fashion for, well, in the Western world, for very pale skin, these fans were placed in front of fireplaces to prevent women's faces turning pink in the heat of the fire, (laughs) or kuros, which means rosy cheeks. Kuros. Of course, ladies weren't supposed to use makeup, but most people did, as they always have, and screen fans prevented often wax-based colours from sort of spoiling in the heat of the fire you don't want to be sitting enjoying the fire and find your face gently melting no of course so the screen yeah. fan protected from that but the arrival of ad- adequate whole house heating systems meant family gatherings didn't always have to be clustered around a fireplace trying to get warm so the screen fan kind of fell out of use so just to help me imagine what a screen fan looked like was it basically the idea that you would hold it up in front of your face no it's usually on a stand yeah. so if you can imagine it's about the height of your face if you're sitting in a chair. Right. So it looks a little bit, I suppose, a little bit like a microphone stand. Uh-huh. But then it's got a beautiful decorated, usually rectangular or oval shaped fan. Wow. Yeah, I found it an interesting design because it kind of harks back to the idea of door. Yeah. Um, it's more of a panel to protect rather than something you waft with your own hand. And I guess linked in a slightly similar way to the concept of like the Chinese screen that used to be put up, you know, to subdivide rooms. Yes, Mm. but your knees will still be warm from the fire. Yeah, of course. But your cheeks will not be melting. Clever, clever. (laughs) And so was it from this point in the 19th century that fans started to fall out of popular use? They were still widely around in the early 20th century with a lot of advertising fans in particular being made. And also feather fans, you mentioned mentioned some that we've got in our collection mm. uh, probably dating from round about then for sort of the fashion conscious that was like a very high society thing having yeah, a feathery yeah. fan but after the first world war not many were produced now eleanor has just closed her fan and drawn it across her cheek what can this possibly mean is it a code it certainly is and besides talking about different fan styles and fan making in today's world i'll translate the secret language of the fan for you right after this I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Right, Eleanor, I am agog. What is this secret language of the fan? Sounds like something spies should be using. I think that could be a totally valid use, honestly. <laughs> I'd like to see that in an action movie. Yeah, me too, with subtitles. What they're communicating in their fan actions. <laughs> now, over the years, quite a lot has been made of the secret language of the fan. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the idea refers to the notion of using your fan to gesture, with the gestures meaning different things. So this was supposedly developed as a way to deal with restrictive social etiquette, which didn't allow young unmarried ladies in particular to be very demonstrative if they were interested in someone. Ah, flirting through fans. However, research has proved that it was much more likely to be a marketing ploy, oh. with fan makers providing little leaflets explaining all the different gestures. Oh, fantastic. So sneaky advertising gimmicks put into fans. In this instance, a successful advertising gimmick. Really? References to the language of the fan appeared in The Spectator in the 1700s, but it wasn't for another century that a full breakdown of the code was published by the fan maker Robert Gleason, who was working with the famous French fan making company De Velroy. And so what kinds of things could you communicate through your fan actions? Well, for example, carrying the fan in your right hand in front of your face meant follow me. But placing it on your left ear meant, I wish to get rid of you. Oh, no. My favourite has to be twirling the fan in the left hand, which means we are watched. <laughs> that one has high potential for spy activity, I think. Oh, definitely. And so what did it mean when you closed your fan and you drew it across your cheek before the break? I love you. Oh, that's so kind. And I love you too. But you're going to have to give me a fan on the 5th of May so I can secretly communicate that to you across rooms. <laughs> well, I just wanted to give a brief rundown of the main styles of fan, which we might have seen through time and can still see some today. Mm. There's the fixed or rigid fan, which is a solid shape with no moving parts. Yeah. Then there's the folding fan, which usually has a pleated leaf of fabric or paper. It's fixed to sticks and guards, which are called the monture. Monchers could be made from luxury materials like mother of pearl, tortoiseshell and ivory too. Yeah. Then there's the brise fan, which consists of the sticks only with no leaf. And the cockade fan, which opens all the way around in a circle, looks kind of like a lollipop. I have seen those before. You can kind of pin them once you've opened yes, them Yes, that's up. it. There's a little hook at the bottom of the handle, so um, it holds the circle I've shape in say, place. Though, the breeze hay fan, that doesn't sound terribly useful to me if it's got nothing in the middle. Well, it's quite beautiful. It still works. Yeah. Um, so the sticks just go all the way to the end and they're usually joined at the top by a thread or a ribbon. But it's got holes in the middle. Um, not normally. The sticks are quite closely packed. Oh, so they're like interlock. Yeah, so it folds and unfolds, but what you get is a little bit more like a rigid fan, I suppose. I used to have one. I'll see if I can find it and show it to you. I understand now. <laughs> now, if you like a fun fan, there's also a great history of novelty fans being produced as early as the 1700s. These could be things like fans which concealed a lorgnette, a magnifying glass or a mirror in their sticks. There was even a fan with a thermometer in it in the 1770s. That's fun. I bet there were some with daggers in the bottom. I really hope so. And <laughs> probably quite likely because they were pretty imaginative. Like yeah. there were a secret vial of perfume could be hidden in a fan or a pencil or a carnet de bal, which is a dance card telling you who you were engaged to dance with at the party. Or a saucy bit of poetry, I bet. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you could even have a fan with an integral snuff box or opera glasses. Excellent. Love the idea of producing opera glasses. It must have been quite heavy. Yeah. And there was one, this is my favourite, whose handle was a flute. So if the party got boring, you could just... <laughs> 
toot on your fan flute. That is very funny. I also reckon that someone's going to be hiding poisons in the base of their fans as I'm well. I'm seeing a whole dramatic novel coming on here yeah. with sort of 17th century poisoners communicating in fan code. Yeah. If anyone would like to write one, we will read it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> Still, I was a bit sceptical about your claim that the fan was the mobile phone of the past, but I can kind of see how it was. Well, it's a pretty amazing item when you really dig into it. Unfortunately, a number of the techniques used to make them in the traditional way really are dying out. Mm. In England, fan making is classed as a paper craft with sort of subcrafts of stick making, painting and mounting. Yeah, I mean, those skills feel like they're around today. They are, although it's more common now for a single maker to combine them. Historically, the labour would have been divided into stick assemblers, paper folders and fan painters. Right, okay. So you might just be a stick assembler and oh never get to God. paint a pretty Can fan. You imagine? I'm now retiring after my long career of being a stick maker. <laughs> no, I'm even a maker, just an assembler. Yeah, assembler. <laughs> you haven't made the sticks, you're just putting them together. Oh God, what's sad. <laughs> the issues affecting the craft today are the usual ones of changing taste, market demand, funding and training. Yeah. I suppose the rise of industrialisation was a huge factor as well. Yes. Fan making was a very labour intensive process until the mid 19th century when a chap called Manasse invented a machine to fold the fan leaves, speeding up productivity by a hundredfold. If you'll excuse the pun. I was going to say, that is a pun. It was intentional. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Another machine was invented in 1859 by Alphonse Bode, which cut out and pierced the fan sticks ready for assembling. Sure. Combined, these machines made it much quicker and easier to produce fans. Evidently, both Frenchmen, which I find quite interesting. It seems, though, that fans are made in much smaller numbers now. It's like mm, you have little custom runs of fans. Yeah, they're sometimes made in small batches of things like film and stage productions and for special commissions. Mm. Like the 100th anniversary of the Wimbledon Ladies Tennis had a special commemorative fan, for example. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of people are going to use those little motorised fans, aren't they? I mean, that's yeah, really what they're going to do. exactly. Which I haven't talked about motorised fans because it's not really the same craft no, at, all. Not at all no no but i can imagine that's what's going to replace it at a certain point people are going to invent the desk fan or they're going to invent the electric fan and mm-hmm. once that exists everyone's going to be like ha i will never waft again which is such a shame because fans can be such a beautiful accessory which tell its own story oh definitely definitely but you know it's the same with many of these kind of craft activities where you make something personal custom it's incredibly crafted and beautiful and very expensive. And that's not viable for you to make an income from at all. Yeah, definitely. And then you get, obviously, the knockoff product that's churned out, which perhaps does the utilitarian the task, yeah, but actually isn't very beautiful at all. And it's something that you kind of want to put away in a cupboard, actually, rather mm. than look at or show off. Um, so, OK, let's say I want to make a fan today in the traditional way I can't yet afford my dues to the worshipful company of fan makers. Where do I start with how I make a fan? So the worshipful company of fan makers might fund you. They yeah. do have some training opportunities in place, which I've mentioned. But you could also attend one of the monthly fan making workshops run by the Fan Museum in Greenwich, Whoa. which is a fantastic resource for historic fans. I highly recommend a visit to their collection. It's so lovely. I have never even heard of the Fan oh, Museum. Oh, well, we in should Greenwich. go together. It's so beautiful. Oh, Greenwich is so interesting, anyway, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So much to see. It's in there. a beautiful townhouse. Oh, gorgeous. All right, so the Fan Museum in Greenwich. I 
I could go there, attend a workshop. That sounds like it's a manageable thing. Yes, if you like looking at historic fans, the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge also has an excellent collection, but I think you might have to ask them if you want to see it. They don't have it out on permanent display. I wandered into it and I think it was meant to be closed and I wasn't supposed to and the lights weren't really on, but it was still very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) There's also the Fan Circle International through whom you can find out more. They're an organisation which works to promote interest and research into the hand fan. The and Fan have, Circle International. Yes, fascinating website full of resources with loads of images of the different types of fans I've talked about. So well worth a look at them. Okay, well, I feel like I've been thoroughly well informed about how to make fans and about their history. And I've got how many months until summer? Like four, five months. I've got plenty of time. So, Eleanor, thank you very much. You've prepared me well to keep myself nice and cool over the summer months. (laughs) Now, dear listener, if you've ever done any fan making or you're one of the select few who still rely on a hand fan to keep you cool, we would love to hear from you. Yes, please get in touch with us on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast and x at three ravens pod. Or you can email us at three ravens podcast at gmail. Okay, so which wonderful craft are we going to be exploring next month? Next time, we will be exploring the wonderful world of trug and basket making. Oh, you love a basket, don't you? I do. I'm not quite a basket case, (laughs) but it's close. (laughs) Well, I look forward to that. In the meantime, if exclusive content is what you fancy, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon for only $3 a month or $6 a month. That's at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast we have lots of fun things including ad free episodes text versions of our stories special patreon exclusive episodes including the three ravens film club and our monthly newsletter with spells tarot spreads folk customs and more and if you're enjoying the podcast and have time to write us a quick review on itunes or apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it mm-hmm. and if you're a social media raven come and join us on the three ravens podcast group yes, yes there's lots of fun conversations and inspiring folkloric Bits on there. We'll be back on Monday. Eleanor, where are we going on Monday? We are off to Herefordshire. Oh, yeah, Herefordshire. And there be dragons. Excellent. <laughs> Until next time, then, while the beautifully painted leaves of our fan have wafted that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production produced by me, Martin Vorgs. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean men With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.